forever. Dog. Hi, folks. We got an episode from The Vault today. Um, this was a conversation that I had with screenwriter John Spate, who wrote Prometheus and Doctor Strange. Uh, since then, he's written Passengers, uh, The Mummy. He's writing the Dune uh, adaptation, Justice League Dark. Like, he's writing a ton of things. But at this point, um, it was really the the conversation was focused on Doctor Strange. This was originally released as part of the Nerdist Comics panel, the show I used to do. Um, that was a spinoff of the writer's panel, which um, has now transformed into the comic book commentary, which if you like behind the scenes stuff, which if you're listening to the writer's panel, you do, um, and you read comic books, which maybe you do, go check out comic book commentary in which uh, writers of comic books do a commentary for that for an issue that has come out the day that we released the podcast. Um We've had a bunch of great people already, uh, Kelly Thompson, Joe Henderson, Cena Grace, me, uh, basically going through an issue of the comic and just talking about what went into it, how it was made. Um, it is, you know, I, I used to love DVD commentaries, so it's the kind of thing that I wish existed when I was starting out as a comics writer, um, but now it does. Um, so anyway, here's a conversation with John Spate, uh, who, you know, he's... A, a big deal screenwriter. Uh, and he's also a lovely guy. And we had a great conversation about Doctor Strange, Prometheus, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I hope you will enjoy it. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Thank you for being here, John Spates. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We're doing it. Yes. Um, let's talk about... Uh, let's talk about some movies. Mm -hmm. You have had a hand... It's funny looking at your resume, uh, because you've had a hand in these sort of two big sort of franchise movies. Right. Um, But you've been in this business for a while. You've worked on a lot of things, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to start... So you're you're credited on Doctor Strange. Yes. Uh, You're credited on Prometheus. Yes. uh, And Passengers, which is coming out soon. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Passengers for a minute. Sure. Because this has been long gestating. <laughs> Indeed. It's been my calling card for virtually my whole career Yeah, uh, in Hollywood. I sold a big sci-fi shoot 'em up to Warner Brothers from New York. It was actually the first screenplay I ever wrote. Really? And uh, moved to L.A. to pursue the career. And while that movie never got made... Uh, it brought me to town, and the next thing I wrote was a script called Passengers. Hmm. Let's. I want to talk about that sci-fi shoot 'em up for a second, sure, because that's really interesting. So, uh, how long ago was this? That's about ten years ago. Okay, uh, so not terribly long. Ago. Not no, yeah, it's not the ancient past, but right. uh, it's a it's you, a solid decade. You were a different of Hollywood man. time, yeah. Um, what were you doing in New York at the time, and and why screenwriting? Why was that what you wanted to do? I have always wanted to write stories for a living since I was a little kid. By the time I knew that books were written by people and didn't just happen, it was a given mm-hmm. that I would write them, too. It wasn't even a decision. It just seemed obvious. Do you remember that lightning bolt moment? Do you remember discovering that someone wrote this story that you loved? Uh I don't actually because it, it was so long ago. I truly think that you know in the process of learning what books were and learning that there were people who wrote them. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew at once that I would be one of those people because sure. stories were the best thing. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I read just mountains of fantasy and sci-fi. And so in my early life, I was going to be a fantasy novelist and a sci-fi novelist. And then I went to college and kind of outgrew all that, I thought, and was going to be... I was reading a lot of literary fiction, and I was going to write highbrow literary fiction. Sure. Uh, And then after college, I ended up founding a production company with a college friend, and we did documentary videos and multimedia for museums, largely. Uh, And for the first time, I shot, I edited, I directed shoots, and... Got the film bug. I'd always loved movies, mm-hmm. but the process by which movies were written and made was sufficiently mysterious that my ambition never included them. Sure. Uh, but once I started getting my hands on the tools, even in a small way, 
then instantly my love transferred to film. It just seemed like a more vivid and a larger forum in which to write, an easier way to make a living if you could get into the game. Um, and I never looked back. Hmm. So how did you start to... Th- this uh, movie that sold was, you say, your first screenplay. Right. How did you even know what that looked like? I mean, you had done these sort of... Well, this you, was, you, you had the tools. I did, but it was interesting. They were a different set of tools than yeah. anyone today. Uh, I'm not sure... Uh, there wasn't a lot of screenwriting software back then. There certainly was not a lot of screenwriting to read. Yeah. Uh, the web was barely the web. There were not archives of PDF screenplays to be had. In New York City, you'd go down to Times Square, and there were guys with folding tables who would sell bootleg photocopied screenplays right. with colored construction paper covers mm-hmm. for 10 bucks a pop. And Did you I, pick those up? I bought those. <laughs> Do you uh, remember which scripts you bought? Oh, so many. Uh I mean, classic Shane Black scripts, Jim Cameron scripts, uh, and then, you know, odd classics. Basically, uh, there would be a mixture of canonical scripts that everyone would talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, your Robert Town or right. what have Chinatown you. Chinatown and things exactly, like that. Exactly, and, and then there'd be a potpourri of whatever had been out recently was kind of interesting to people. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I just sort of bought whatever I could just mm-hmm. to understand the format, understand the form. Coming from fiction... Uh, shifting into screenwriting is not simple. A screenplay is almost the opposite of a novel. In a screenplay, you are dealing purely with externalities. You talk about what you see and what you hear, uh, what can be performed. Uh, In a novel, you have a direct pipeline into the mental monologue of your main character, and you have to imagine the sights and sounds and so forth, those are implied poetically, but in film, those things are all you get. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get the surfaces, you have to imagine the interior. Novel is the opposite of that. And so writing for film is a very different thing. Uh, But I read a bunch of screenplays, and I kept a deep notebook of ideas that I was pushing forward, and they were all over the map. Historical fiction, comedy, Hmm. uh, crime thrillers, just any story that interested me. I have very broad tastes. Uh, In the end, I went with the idea that I thought was most unique and most remarkable mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted to make a mark. I wanted to get in. You know, sure. It takes a lot of time to write a screenplay <clears throat> on your own. Breaking into Hollywood in that respect is very hard. You need to invest an enormous amount of time. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of people who write a dozen or 20 scripts and pile them up. And That was not my process. I've always been more of a perf- perfectionist. I incubate for a long time. And then I write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite hmm. and polish um, and what comes out, hopefully, is very strong. So, how did you? Was that that was? I assume that was the process for this first that script. first screenplay. It was a big uh, space epic called Shadow Nineteen, mm-hmm. and it uh, it placed on the blacklist. Right. Uh, low. Or passengers <laughs> a few years later placed very high on the blacklist, but we squeaked out, of the, squeaked out of the blacklist and won a few contests and sold to Warner Brothers. So th- then the blacklist, as I recall, was not even like a, a online public concern. It was just sort of the thing that was passed around. Yeah, it really began as uh, an inside baseball yeah. friendly recommendation list by Franklin Which Leonard. Which means your script must have been in the hands of agents or yes, it traveled. things. So how did you, what were you doing in in New York, and how did you get it into those hands? The hardest thing to know as an outsider in New York was where the bar was. I could write something that felt Hmm. really good to me, but for all I knew, it was going to be lost in a sea of just beautiful Pulitzer-level pieces of writing, and I didn't know what was normal. Yeah. And uh, people talk a lot about entering contests as a way... Uh, to get known or to get attention, maybe to get an agent. And in fact, uh, there's reason to believe that there's only a couple of contests that move the needle at all Mm. in career terms. What the contest did for me was to provide me with a, a series of test cases, some sense of how well my script was actually going to perform uh, in the company of a lot of other screenplays. Mm -hmm. And so I entered probably 10 different contests, small and large, and I won a bunch of them and placed in almost everything. Wow. And so I thought, all right, maybe it's actually good in context. Uh Uh, I was a semifinalist in the nickel 
Fellowship, which is uh, that's a big one. That's a big medium deal. good. It's pretty good yeah. uh, for a for a big science fiction story to a semifinal mm-hmm. in the Nichols, which 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 has more of a bias towards Sundance Fair. Yeah, I think was actually better than the the, the mere rank would would uh, suggest. Yeah. So yeah, with all of that, I started to believe that maybe this was something. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple of very tenuous Hollywood contacts and or industry contacts mm-hmm. in, in New York. Um, and I reached out to them when I had the contest win and so forth. And mm. in a couple of handshakes, I met my manager, uh, it was uh, Lawrence Mattis of Circle of Confusion, mm-hmm. who uh, he discovered the Wachowski brothers and Simon Kinberg and some other players. And through him, the script sold to Warner Brothers, and I oh, interesting. upped stakes and moved <laughs> to L.A. Uh, so what happened when you got here? Because that is... That's a huge step. It is right? a giant but step, But it could also yes. lead to nothing, or it could lead to consistent work for a decade. Yeah, it's there's a giant education that <laughs> a new screenwriter has to go through coming to town. Maybe it's different for people who are very plugged in, like kids who are lucky enough to go to USC film programs mm-hmm. and grow up in Hollywood surrounded by industry. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are people who already speak the cultural language. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's but so the, much of it you only learn by experience. Yeah, you have to. And in, in the same way that... If you're a high school kid and you go to college, you have to relearn education. Mm -hmm. In high school, teachers are authority figures that you don't question. Homework is just a rote list of assignments that you execute. You go to college and you're expected at a good college to have a collegial relationship with your professor. You're supposed to be an academic peer now. Um, You're supposed to become a driver of your education and to choose directions, to choose lines of inquiry. And I think for most kids at college, it takes years just to wrap their heads around Mm -hmm. their new position. Like, oh, I'm driving now. I'm a colleague now. I don't just accept uh, assignments uh, like a robot from my taskmasters and execute them. I'm now supposed to be a player in the field. And moving to Hollywood and becoming a screenwriter for real, entering the development process and the pitching process, uh, it's a similar education. Yeah. Uh, So... I was doing two things at once in the beginning, mm-hmm. and one was I was doing the rounds, you know, two and three general meetings a day, shaking hands with people, and that's a lot to learn. You think when you first arrive that these general meetings are job interviews. Right. You walk into the room and someone will say, hey, here's a job, write a movie. <laughs> and then you go to dozens of them and there's no job. No. And you slowly realize that people are just getting to know you. Sometimes they're really prospecting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're... Forming a relationship and just sort of popping you in the Rolodex down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, honestly, they just are killing time in the afternoon. For their, you know, their bosses expect them to stay busy so they can say, I saw that nickel fellowship kid. Um, so, so what advice do you have for people who are having these meetings? For a new screenwriter making the rounds? You have to understand that it is a long game. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're a baby writer with very little capital. Um you are going to spend some time beating the street and building relationships. When I first graduated from college, there were ways in which I was aware of being unsophisticated. And I wanted to become more sophisticated about things like economics, about certain aspects of the news that I had never tracked. And so I just made myself read The Economist and The New York Times every week, every day. And including the sections that had been opaque to me for a long time. And it was hard going. It was a slog because those words were ciphers to me. Those sentences were meaningless and I would push my head through them in the early going. But over time, you develop landmarks. Mm -hmm. You learn this idea, which leads to the next idea, which leads to the next idea. You begin to recognize names that repeat, patterns that repeat. And before long, you have a knowledge base. Something similar happens in Hollywood. You come to town and people ask you who you met when you went to a company and they expect you to remember the names. And when you're new, of course, you can't. They're all just syllables. Um, (laughs) They ask you who made movies that you like and you don't know who made them because when you just love movies, studios barely matter. Certainly production companies are off your radar. You don't know who cinematographers are. There's a lot to learn about the anatomy of the industry and the makers of film, but you go to a couple of general meetings a day for six months or a year and you start 
to run into people again. You start to recognize names. You can put faces to names and uh, attach people to companies. And you start to develop a map of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. You start to see uh, the layout of how things get written, sold, and made. Um, So uh, advice to early writers would simply be, understand that a lot of what you're doing when you first get to town is getting acculturated, learning the ropes, becoming familiar to people and circulating. Uh, The industry has chattering classes. Development executives and producers and agents and managers talk all day. They talk to each other. uh, They talk amongst themselves. They read things and talk about what they wrote. It was not unusual for me to go have a general meeting at one company in the morning, go grab lunch someplace, roll into an afternoon general meeting, and the person behind the desk says, so you met with Darcy this morning. And they'd already spoken. (laughs) Not different companies, different studios. Um, People just chat. Word Mm -hmm. gets around. And a lot of what you're doing when you first come to town is merely making a name for yourself. You know, I spent a year being funny and charming in rooms and riffing on story and talking about movies. And honestly, there are relationships that are very important in my career now that were born in those casual conversations. There were people I hit it off with. We had common tastes. We had an inspiring conversation that left the banal job interview space and went into this great film buff space. Mm -hmm. We talked story and photography and sci-fi and connected Mm -hmm. and some of those people are very important now so in the early going you're just making a name for yourself learning the ropes and then too lightning could strike at any time if you walk into the room and tap dance right and somebody desperately needs an inexpensive draft of something written (laughs) you might be the kid who gets to do it um there were a couple of near misses i said no to a job Really? Been like a low six-figure job in my first year when I was kind of watching my war chest dwindle. Yeah, that's an unusual thing for a young writer. Uh, it was a dodgy job. It was sort of an obscure video game adaptation for a tiny little company, and the person who'd created the video game had written the first draft and was still attached. I'd be rewriting that person in front of that person. It mm-hmm. just felt like a morass. It was a morass that would have paid the rent for a while. Mm-hmm. But I... Uh, sucked in my gut and gambled, and something better came. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then simultaneously, yeah. of course, I was developing Shadow 19 at Warner Brothers, right. and there, too, something very similar to that high school uh, college transition was required of me, mm-hmm. and I was, at, as best I could, learning it. The learning that I'm supposed to call up studio executives by whom I am overawed and <laughs> chat with them about yeah. the story, shoot the breeze. And the faster you can get to that collegial space and casually call people up and chat with them, uh, the more readily you'll be assimilated into the industry. There's mm-hmm. a reason that the L.A. stereotype, sort of the cocky Hollywood type, is a, hey, booby person who's just too chatty, overly form- informal, overly familiar. Hmm. Um, that's actually the character of the industry. People need to chat. People need to get quickly into the process and start doing the work and move past formalities and hmm. so forth. And so there's actually a functional benefit to that culture that you need to quickly do the work. You need to everybody know each other, everybody comfortable fast and go form a team. Um, so the chattiness is important. It took me a while to learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, as a baby writer... And that's, you know, a a term divorced from age is just about being new to the industry, newborn uh, as a screenwriter, working screenwriter. Uh, You have no cachet or power in the room. The development process is always going to be you as the tail of the kite. Everybody else has the wind. Um, And in the end, I did a few drafts. The movie spun off, got the script spun off, got rewritten by some other people. I got moved off of it. It never got made. It was overshadowed by a couple of projects that executives feared might be familiar, Mm. uh, similar, have similar posters. Right. (laughs) Um, And it it takes no more than that sometimes to kill a project if it doesn't have a lot of heat. Um, And so it ended up on a shelf, and I went on, had a career. Right. Um, uh, more we, recently, I bought that screenplay back. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. That's great. So it's back on my vault, and mm-hmm. I still plan to do something with it down the road because I think it's still really good. That's great. Um, but it was my ticket to town. You yeah. know, even if it never does anything more, it was it did everything it needed to do. Were you in this time of meeting executives and developing that screenplay, were you writing new material? 
I want to say yes, that I was cranking out a bunch of specs, <laughs> but in fact, no. A couple of general meetings a day in a town you don't know, where you're still learning the roads. I was yeah. owning my first car after 10 years in Manhattan sure. with no car. Um, you're finding a place, you're furnishing it, you're trying to figure out how your social life is going to work. There's a lot to do in a first year in any city. Um, and then with between that and developing the screenplay I already had and going to meetings, it was all there was. Mm-hmm. So when did... Passengers start to take shape. Uh, Passengers was born when I sat down with some guys at Company Films, mm-hmm. little production shingle, and uh, we tried to find a movie to do, and they mm-hmm. love Shadow Nineteen. And I actually pitched them something from my notebook. Uh, it was a noir story that took a big sci-fi hook at the late going. Um, something I still intend to do something with eventually. Um, and in the end, they decided it was too dark for them and not the direction they wanted to go, but it prominently featured the image of a man stranded alone in space. And they said, hey, we like that. Hmm. Is there, instead of a story that ends in that, is there a story that begins there, the man stranded alone in space? And I said, oh, that's interesting. And it was one of those fertilizing questions Um, every now and then someone asks you a question and a story jumps out of your head almost fully formed. And that happened on this phone call. Hmm. I said, well, man stranded alone in space. Oh, I would think about colony ships, like generation ships and sleeper ships, the ones that take centuries sublight to go from one star to another, because that's solitude. That's endless solitude. Um, and a guy alone, like maybe there's a caretaker, who takes care of the sleeping people but has a very long, lonely shift, or even better, what if everyone's asleep and one person wakes up? What if it's an accident? What would happen next? And after that, the the beats of the plot unfolded by what felt like necessity, like mm-hmm. the entire story was contained logically within the conceptual, the, the, incep- the inception of it. Yeah. And uh, in 20 or 30 minutes on the phone, I'd beaten out the spine of what became Passengers, including the title. And that, the spine of the story has never changed. The title's never changed. Mm-hmm. And a lot, I quickly dove, they loved it. I dove into the first draft. And we developed the screenplay for for years, a great creative team. Um, and it was a passionate, intimate, romantic story between a relatively small cast of characters in a grand, expensive environment, a, a luxury starship. And it had comedy, and it was sexy, it had survival adventure and shocking secrets, but it wasn't exactly like anything. Mm-hmm. And when we began to talk it around town, people struggled with it. Mm-hmm. It was in some ways a small story, in some ways a gigantic story. It was not inexpensive to make. And it wasn't just like anything that had made a pile of money. Right. Nothing's more reassuring uh, to a studio than to be able to go and, and say, I've got a story that's very much like this other thing that made a mountain of money, but with a twist that makes it new. Mm-hmm. And they say, come to daddy. <laughs> um, this was not like anything. It was hard to sort into a genre. It was the original story that everybody says they want, but that when it actually shows up, scares the hell sure. out of everybody. And you even had a script. Yes. At this yeah, point. a script I mean, this that I... This was a I, thing they can read and understand with this movie. Right, and the script escaped into the world. It, yeah. uh, it, it was very close to the top of the blacklist mm-hmm. uh, in 07, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and it circulated heavily. We had the odd benefit that the writer's strike happened not long after and for many months no new material hit the town sure and so the producers and executives and managers idling at their desks were passing around whatever they could to read and during the strike passengers circulated heavily and was read by everybody Hmm. Um, and so it developed a kind of constituency within the town and so that for years afterward and all screenwriting careers are icebergs. There's much more activity under the surface mm-hmm. than ever surfaces. Um, so if you know a screenwriter by their IMDb credits, you know literally maybe a tenth of what they've sure. been up to. And we've all, if we've been around for a while, 
written multiple drafts of projects we poured our heart into that ended up shelved, ended up dropped, turned into something else, got rewritten unrecognizably by somebody else. And so we all have this kind of graveyard, not necessarily a graveyard. Sometimes it's a warehouse. Those things can come back. And sometimes 15 years later they do. Uh, But we have the the shadows behind the curtain where all of these things that we've worked on building exist. And then every now and then one will break the surface, which leads to things like uh, happening to me now where two big movies Mm -hmm. are coming out almost simultaneously, uh, both of which I've worked on over the course of years and one instance over the course of a decade. Yeah, that's just wild. I mean, it has to be incredibly satisfying. I mean, it seems like Passengers is also a very sort of personal story that you had to tell. Yes, and Passengers is unique in a number of ways. Not only is it an unusual story in its shape, but uh, I've worked on it for a decade, and I've stayed with it the whole time. And I was on set during production Mm -hmm. at the elbow of the director. I was in the edit room a lot in post um, I huddled up with department heads on set and talked about the design and content of screens and uh, things they had to build. So I, it was film school for me and a deep dive into big-budget filmmaking. Uh, nice working relationship with the lead actors and just in every way uh, a very unusual and robust experience. Mm-hmm. And it will hit the screen basically intact in its spirit you know with all of the usual mutations mm-hmm. of production things that didn't work on the cut ended up on the cutting room floor things we discovered on the day or in the run up to production that ended up spontaneously in the movie uh, but it's passengers recognizably still the movie that was born in 20 or 30 minutes of riffing on a phone call 10 years ago that is amazing that's um, so cool so yeah that one very personal and yeah. and there's a larger world growing around it i uh wrote and shot some viral ads in the set, oh, in, the, great. set in the universe of the movie uh, during production. There's a virtual reality component coming out from Sony that have helped work to create. And so the world of the Homestead Company and its colony planets mm-hmm. uh, may keep growing beyond the film. And that's fun and exciting, too. So that's yeah. very special. Um, Doctor Strange, of course, is a much larger enterprise with underlying material. Material dear to me. Mm-hmm. I, I was something I pursued avidly because I love Doctor Strange with an abiding passion and have since I was a kid. He's always been my favorite comic book figure. Um, so when I heard the movie was coming up again and they were going to try to make it, I I heard early, jumped on the phone with my agent, mm-hmm. talked my way into the room before How they were ready. How did you talk your way into the room? That's funny. I just uh, insisted a lot. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you love the character. You have yeah, I was eating character. a cheeseburger in a diner. And reading Variety, and I saw this little tiny blurb in a column that Marvel was talking to directors about hmm. a Doctor Strange movie. And I picked up my phone instantly and called my agent you know, with my mouth full and said, Doctor Strange, is there a script? And he said, I assume there's a script. If they're looking for directors, there's usually a script. But I said, well, call, find out. And he called, called me back a couple minutes later. He says, actually, there's no script. Uh, hmm. They're starting with directors, and they're narrowing it down. And I said, we'll call them back right now and tell them they need to talk to me. <laughs> and um, it was about at that time that Scott Derrickson was attached to the project. And he and I were mutual admirers who'd been friendly over Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's a, that's a new thing in yeah. the industry where there's a lot of people who have a kind of tenuous online relationship. A bunch of people I've never met, but we've exchanged nice words or compliments from time to time on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or on the message board somewhere. Um, and it's great, and it counts. And oh, it it's, means it's something. It's a, a real, nice breaker. Yeah, it's a real connection. It's yeah. not. It's not friendship, um, but it's not not friendship. You know, it's it's, it's a real beginning of friendship. And it makes it easier when you do meet face to face. Yeah, absolutely. Those online communities matter. Yeah, uh, twittering is not trivial uh, in Hollywood. At least, it hasn't been for me. No, I agree. Um, so he was he was coming on board around the yeah, same time. Yeah, he was coming on board, and so they got into the mix, and he, of course, came aboard with a bunch of, idea of his own, ideas of his own. Um, and he's a very fine writer as well, so mm-hmm. he's a world builder and a creator himself. Uh, but the schedule they were on was not going to allow him to write the whole movie and direct it. They didn't have the leisure, and so they were going to have a writer work with him, and I got into the room, and we all hit it off. Interesting. Um so did you guys talk for many hours and I became the guy? Did you have a story in mind when you heard Doctor Strange movie? 
Did you know things you wanted to see as a fan of the character? There are, I mean, I'm enough of a fan of the character that there are a dozen things I want to see. Yeah. And you could make Doctor Strange movies for the rest of my life, and I would go see every one with a very large bucket of popcorn. <laughs> um, because he has the best of all the origin stories, the natural place to begin was there. Mm-hmm. And where most comic book origin movies struggle with the artificial requirement of bolting a villain on to the end of the story. So they do their coming-of-age story, they emerge fully formed as the hero, and then they have to fight a battle and put a villain down mm-hmm. to complete their arc. And often that villain battle is a bit rushed or a little convenient sure. because you have to fit it into the movie with the coming-of-age. Um, the villain becomes a non-character. Can can do, or the villain becomes someone very conveniently situated and someone from the hero's alter ego backstory right. has to morph into a supervillain conveniently at the same time that sure. the hero morphs into a hero. Um, Doctor Strange didn't have that handicap because there are, there's a beautiful villain arc built into the canonical origin of Doctor mm-hmm. Strange. And between just the deeply sound dramatic qualities of that origin story and the fact that there's a beautiful villain arc integrated into it, it was the natural place to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did have the blue sky conversation. We did ask ourselves, you know, is the origin story tired? Do we need to find him uh, in full flight and then mm-hmm. sketch his origin story in behind him? We looked at big villains who've played out in the decades of his canonical existence and talked about who it would be great to match him up with and considered all options. But the gravitational attraction of that beautiful comic origin story brought us home. Mm-hmm. And, and it absolutely makes sense. And as you say, the villain is intrinsic yeah. to the origin story. And I think that's what holds the whole movie together exactly. uh, in a way that it might not with a different origin story. It's smart. Um, did you, you three, it was three of you, right? Cargo was there too, or did he come in? No, later? Cargo came later. Okay. Um, at the time, uh, it was Scott Derrickson and our executive producer, Stephen Broussard, mm-hmm. also a deep fan, and uh, Kevin Feige. Okay. So the four of us in room. Sort of for architecting this. Yeah, we broke uh, story. story. I would go away and outline. I'd come back. We'd break story some more. I'd run it, go away, write an outline. The oh, outline okay. grew to like 45 or 50 pages of dense text. Until it became really big enough that you should, couldn't get any bigger without starting to become a script. <laughs> right. um, and then I went away and wrote the first draft. Were there were there wrong roads along the way as these discussions went forward or even in the outline or scripting phase? Many wrong roads. Any that mostly were interesting in to you? small ways. Yeah. Uh, there are... There were a few blind alleys we pursued, some of which remained active in the development process for a very long time. Um, Can you talk about those at all? Sure. Uh, the origin story of Doctor Strange has evolved over time, like all comic stories do. Um, any character who's been around for more than 50 years has their story told and retold and retold, and a lot of writers make their bones in the comics by adding a layer or adding a twist. And... So Doctor Strange began way back in 63 as an adult surgeon uh, whose life took a radical turn and led him to the dark paths of sorcery. Um, Over the years, other characters were retconned into that origin story and became players in it. Uh, Colleagues and the surgeon who worked on his hands and other people played roles later on. And then a story before the origin story was added so that uh, back to his childhood and his brother and his sister became important figures uh, with whom slightly magical things happened. There was a tragic past relating to his sister and that developed a magical magical wrinkles in later stories. His brother became a big deal. And, you know, the the mythologies grew denser and denser. And so we played with a few of those angles, um, and some of them persisted throughout, you know, more than a year of developing the script, but then ultimately are not in the movie. Yeah. Well, it seems like the movie movie knows what it wants to be. I mean, there's a very streamlined version. But that emerges, that, that emerges not... 
uh, sui generis from some no. inspired creative process. That emerges like a polished agate from a rock tumbler that yeah. has been beating and beating <laughs> and beating for a long time. The Marvel process is beautifully collaborative and also, also ruthless, mm-hmm. meaning that it's blue sky at the beginning. Um, Kevin Feige, to, despite being the grand master of this universe with a blueprint of his head for where this goes for years to come and dozens of movies ro- rolling around in his imagination, he'll listen to anything you say and consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always best idea wins. Uh, but that, of course, also means that your favorite idea could end up on the trash heap instantly right. if there's a better idea in the room, if yeah. there's a better take. Um, everything is constantly being forced to earn its presence in the story. Mm-hmm. And Everything is constantly being subjected to the examination and the question: Can this be improved? Yeah. Uh, which, which this is what a plusing. movie should. Can you plus this? This like is what a movie should go through. Right? Yes, absolutely. The Pixar process is not yeah. dissimilar, um, and I think there's a reason that Pixar and Marvel are the possessors of the longest blue streak runs or blue chip streaks in yeah, yeah. In, in the history of film. Um, it is that rigorous process yeah. uh, with a lot of artists at the table, um, with a strong creative leader with a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it is in many ways, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, like being a writer on someone else's show. Right. Uh, you know, Feige is the showrunner, but you still have a voice mm-hmm. in the room. Do you feel like the movie you wound up with has your voice in it? Yes, deeply. Um, that's one of the reasons this season for me is so exciting. Hmm. Um, you know, I also worked a lot on The Mummy, the Tom Cruise mm-hmm. movie uh, that just wrapped. And I was the first writer on, did a bunch of drafts, then I co-wrote a bunch more drafts with Alex Kurtzman, who directed the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it ran off without me, and I went off to do other things, and Alex did other drafts with other writers, and Tom Cruise came aboard, and he is a fountain of ideas and a force of nature, and he has writers he works with. So... I think there's still a lot of my story in that movie, but I'm not going to sit in a theater and expect to hear my dialogue tripping off sure. anybody's lips or think, oh, that's exactly what I did. Um, a lot of my big ideas and structures and scenes, I think, will be in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very common writerly experience right. in Hollywood, and uh, if you're going to survive a long time here, it's necessary to become a little philosophical about that. Sure. Um, well, that, too, is a... It's a living process. It's not unlike uh, pursuing love. We all, well, not all, but we mostly want partnership. We want to find true love, the real deal, the thing we've been sold our whole lives. And the only way to get to it is to leave ourselves open to heartbreak and hurt, uh, to expose ourselves again and again. And, of course, nobody's the one until someone is. Um, and that means that we all have relationships end far, far more than we have them last a long time. Mm-hmm. And to be good in relationships, you have to accept heartbreak as a cost and just be as gracious about it as you can again and again. It's not very different to be a screenwriter. You have to know that most of the time the movie won't get made. Most of the time your vision will be altered in some way. You still have to fall in love if you want to do good work. If you try to do work without falling in love with your story, you will become a hack. It will be discernible. Absolutely. It shows. It yeah. shows when you don't deeply care. Yeah. Um, but you were saying, so Passengers and Doctor Strange both are do get to tell personal stories. Yes. they're uh, One, they're both deeply important to me in different ways. One, I invented and right. it's, it has a uniqueness and what feels like a fingerprint. Uh, it feels like my work. And then the other one, of course, is a childhood hero that I got to yeah. join, jump into the canon. Uh, and that's an incredible experience. Um, and in both of them, uh, there's a, I mean, in Passengers, pretty much all me. Mm-hmm. And in Doctor Strange, there's a lot me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I wrote is there. I, I came in late to help them refine the movie at the end. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that first draft. And then Scott Derrickson and Cargill worked on it for a year mm-hmm. uh, without me when I was off doing Passenger stuff. Mm-hmm. A couple of other writers came in in the Marvel way to sort of punch up, to find heart, to find humor. It's a big boat. You know, mm-hmm. these, are, these are big enterprises. Um, but it's very much Scott Derrickson's vision and you know, was from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it is very much the story we shaped in my outlining process and first draft. So when I sit down and eat popcorn, there's a lot of little moments that are definitely me. Like, That's great. There's a ton of material. So it feels, it feels great. Is there stuff, and we can get specific uh, if, if you are game to, but is there stuff that 
you had in those earliest drafts or even in the outline that you see in the final movie that you can get excited about? Oh, absolutely. Many, many things. Um, it can be as simple as a line. Um, mm-hmm. There's a number of great jokes in the movie, and most of them are not mine. But one of them is. And, <laughs> Which you one know, is? Uh, the Wi-Fi password joke. Oh, that was a good joke. Um, <laughs> And you know, there's a, a lot of other banter. Most of the most of the crunchy homeworky stuff, like mm-hmm. the the medical talk mm-hmm. and the sort of weird medical cases that were invented for the movie, and a lot of the science talk as it mm-hmm. relates to magic, uh, comes pretty intact out of my first draft. Um, sometimes it's That's just cool. little images: a bandaged hand running down a row of prayer wheels mm-hmm. um, that felt like poetry when I wrote it, and then I saw the teaser come out, and like, there it was. Like, oh, that's, that's my bandaged that's hand. Really cool. Yeah, and you get attached to little things like that, and then, but because I'm working with a big team of artists, there are also a lot of delightful surprises. Things. That, oh, absolutely. Uh, there are things that I put in the movie in a form, um, and they're better now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the best case scenario. Yeah, someone found happens. a much better way to yeah. do that after me. And the thing, I, I absolutely recognize myself in that thing. I created that moment, but that moment now is a different shape or someone says something way better than. And so it's exciting to see things gain altitude and see yeah. other artists raising uh, the bar for the whole film. That's cool. um, all of that is delightful. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, I know people want to know about the film's... Um, Relationship to the rest of the Marvel Universe, and mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they brought in, you know, Marcus and McFeely and who, any of these other guys who have worked on the other films. How much was that a conversation in the planning stages? It didn't need to be a big conversation for us because the origin story happens in its own world. And Doctor Strange in the comics largely lives mm-hmm. in a territory of his own, which is within the wider universe. Um, he is a frequent visitor to other heroes' stories. Um, and, you know, I, I read comic books in a patchwork manner as a kid because I couldn't get to a comic store all the time. So it was, you mm-hmm. know, garage sales and yep. hand-me-downs. And, yeah. And so I never read them consecutively. And I'm mm-hmm. always reading those little rectangles where they say, see Spider-Man 182 for the origin of this figure. Yep. Um and so you're sort of slowly piecing together this wider universe. Actually, kind of a great way to take in stories because it feels very organic and mysterious, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that we meet people in real life and they're talking about stuff we don't recognize and dropping names we don't know. And we slowly put the picture together as we get to know people, and the comics felt like that. Um, in those comics, he f- often turns up as an explainer or a guide or a gatekeeper Mm -hmm. in the stories of other people. So, you know, Spider-Man has a supernatural experience and suddenly he's talking to Doctor Strange. Um, And and then apart from that, he has these deep sagas that happen in other dimensions, other universes, deeply psychedelic spaces. They happen in the mind. They happen entirely in astral form, invisibly. Um... And in that way, he's isolated from the other events of the Marvel Universe because mm-hmm. he's dealing with different stuff. Uh, and so it was very organic in telling his origin story that that was going to be set largely in the magical territory mm-hmm. of the Which Marvel Which hadn't been explored. Universe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but now that we've kicked the door open to it, um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. And that's very exciting to me because there are other figures in that space. There are other magical or semi-magical mm-hmm. Um, characters in the pantheon, both villains and, and heroes, yeah. who I think become more meetable. And how much conversation goes on uh, in these planning sessions about future films, direct sequels? A lot. Um, hmm. But but it's more idle. It's more shooting the breeze between mm-hmm. the intense work sessions because the work at hand is to build the story in front of you. Yeah. And until you've got it right, you don't concern yourself too much with uh, planting seeds for later tales. Right. They, they're always present. You know, you look at any story, in the end there's ten things that you kind of want to follow. Mm-hmm. And some of those will be discoveries. Mm-hmm. And others will be plants mm-hmm. intended from the beginning. So yeah, we did talk about what future movies might be. Um, in particular, how the characters we were creating might rub together down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly we were concerned with the task at hand. Sure. Like how do you get this one right? Sure. Uh, before we move on, and we actually have to start to wrap up, Aristotle here 
is a big Doctor Strange fan mm-hmm. and a tremendous nerd. Do you have any deep nerd questions you want to ask? And you just saw the movie. Uh, All right, think about it for a minute. Um, I wanted to ask, on these sort of big movies that are franchises, these movies that sort of belong to other people in the the grander sense, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Marvel or Prometheus uh, or The Mummy uh, or any one of the dozen things that you're supposed to be <laughs> working right. on, are you able to tell your personal story? Are you able to emotionally uh, invest in these products? I mean, it sounds like in Strange you were because it was a toy you wanted to play with. Yeah, and honestly, I, there, I know there's a lot of... There's cynicism in certain quarters about movie characters or IP as product lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that. In the most cynical versions of it, they're very shallow stories clapped together to sell toys. You know, but the, the Transformers were stories clapped together to sell a line of toys. And you know what? A bunch of kids grew up watching those stories and desperately loving those yeah. characters. Um, they weren't my favorites, but there are deeply devoted fans to those tales for whom... Optimus Prime is King Arthur and has, a, has deep roots in their psyches growing up. You can't take that away from those people because there was a toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, I've heard people talk about uh, you know, action figures or toys being made of their characters as if that's selling out, as, that, as if that's crass. Man, when I was a kid, if you could tell a story and then people would make action figures about it and you could handle that's making it. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's exciting. That's your creative product breaking through into the playground of other people's imaginations. Mm -hmm. And if you come up with something so compelling to people that it becomes Halloween costumes and lunchboxes and board games and what have you, um, that's the apotheosis Mm -hmm. of the storyteller. You've created, you're starting to have something that has a mythos uh, that folktales will spin off of. That's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Um, Passengers is not likely to spawn a line of action figures. It is, you but know, you have more built a, a world. Yeah, but is there is a, there is a world, and that world could live on, and other yeah. stories, and could continue to resonate. Um, but the, the the exact answer to your question is, I think, it's not just that you can tell your personal stories, even when you're working someone else's commercial playground. You can't not if you're doing it right. That's the only way you're going to tell a good story is if you you got to get into it. And swim around in it for a while, get to know it really well, dream about it, cogitate about it, and start to see yourself in it. Mm -hmm. And then your childhood bullying experience is going to come out and infuse a tale. The time you got your heart broken, that incredible trip you made to Machu Picchu, you know, the experiences of your life will infuse Mm -hmm. the story in front of you. The rivalry that you still have, the conflict with your mom, whatever it is, your stuff will breathe into the piece. And if you do it right, you can't avoid telling a personal story, even if you are writing about somebody else's action figures. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great thing for people to keep in mind, not just as they you know go to these movies, but as they create these things. Yeah, if you think you're going to be able to keep your heart back and rise above the material and cynically cash in mm-hmm. writing stories about this thing, you're going to fail. Because people can sense it. We, you know, narrative is not just uh, a popular entertainment. It's the coin of our culture. You know, it, it is the centerpiece. The thing that happens around the hearth when the people are gathered in the long hall has been uniting us since we were monkeys. And we're good at it in the same way that there are whole cortices in our brain dedicated to recognizing and reading facial expressions. Um, we process narrative like language. It's mm-hmm. in our bones. And you can't kid the people. If, you're not, if your heart is not in it, yeah. if you were telling a crass story that you don't really believe in yourself, everybody can smell it. I think you're absolutely and it right. won't land. All right, Aristotle, any questions? Was Mephisto ever, ever part of the plan? And or was the living tribunal like a nice Easter egg? Or is that to imply like they're out there somewhere? Well, I don't think there are any rigid plans that extend movies sure. into the future because it's in the nature of making television and film. Um, 
you can plan on a character becoming important and the actor won't really land the performance and you've got to find somebody else. Or another movie will begin to exert a gravitational attraction you have to alter your course. Um, there are no rigid plans, movies out, that we know we'll stick to. Mephisto was discussed. <laughs> um, and uh, Shumagarath and Nightmare, like the big bads, just like out there. And I'm, I love that... Um, Doctor Strange plays in different domains that there's there's a gothic Lovecraftian horror world with like dead things and elder gods percolating um, that Dracula is like a, de- yeah. a whole decade long <laughs> nice. bit of Dracula like vampires um, and then there's psychedelic uh, Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. multiverses it's just beautiful and and varied playgrounds for him to uh, to explore. Uh, I don't know, it's one of those things Marvel's portfolio is divided up in complex legalistic ways among multiple mm-hmm. studios right now with Fast, Fantastic Four lives over sure. there and Spider-Man lives over here. Um, but I have my fingers crossed that someday Doctor Doom can get into the mix and be done right because they've mm-hmm. kind of taken a few runs at Doctor Doom and everybody's just tried too hard to refresh the guy you don't need to fix Dr. Doom he's not broken you just bring him in like he is armor and all and let him be the guy and he's a guy with a highly teched out Iron Man suit and deep roots in sorcery who is you know in some comics in some moments the Sorcerer Supreme himself he's a great unifying villain I've always always loved him Um, but it might be legally complex to make a movie with him in it but boy as long as we're speculating but man I love that bad guy he's a great (laughs) one yes are there I mean you've worked as we said in a bunch of these sort of popular universes Mm -hmm. are there characters or is there a world you'd like to get your hands on yes but um, there's a bunch I mean I'm adapting right now a a novel called The Forever War which is Uh, uh, in my top five of sci-fi novels of all time a lot of people's top five and uh, it's downright intimidating frankly the book is so good and so ready to be a film um, so I'm adapting that right now, and that is a dream come mm-hmm. true. But ultimately, my deepest dream is not to be the person exploiting other people's universes, but to, from the blank page, create my own from the ground up and let them grow as big as they can. That's great. And it sounds like Passengers is a great start. It's a beginning. Um, and I've that got is a notebook out. full of other things. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yes, you've got a decade-old notebook, right? Exactly. Full of ideas. Well, keep, keep turning them out. Thank you so much for being here, John. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.